This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 42 of Here's How. Car insurance prices are a hot topic for young people, particularly young males and particularly for people who live outside the reach of public transport. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a campaigner on the topic about ways to reduce insurance claims and insurance costs. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. Two things to say at the start. There was a huge reaction to the last episode with Donald Byrne of RTE. Thank you all for that. I should say that Donald Byrne in the interview suggested that somebody... It was pretty clear that he was insinuating Gemma O'Doherty that somebody broke the confidential terms of the settlement between Gemma O'Doherty and independent news and media, and this explained why a British newspaper had more coverage of the story than RTE. Gemma O'Doherty was in touch to clarify that this is entirely untrue and that she has not breached the terms of her settlement with INM, and she wasn't the source for the stories in The Guardian. In fact, it's pretty obvious if you read The Guardian stories that they're mostly from information on the public record, particularly a lecture given by Gemma O'Doherty that was available to all news media. The second thing I want to say is that nominations for the Blog Awards Ireland are now open and I've put a link for the page where you can nominate Here's How in the podcast section of the awards in the show notes for this podcast in case you want to do that. Make your view heard. Dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. Anyone with a good deal of experience in business knows that renegotiating a deal is a risky thing. When they think about renegotiating, naive people see what they have as the baseline and they assume all change will be in their favour. Things don't normally work out like that. Unless there's been a fundamental shift in the power relations between two parties, there's no reason to think that the result of new negotiations between them will be any different to the previous ones. Indeed, they may well be worse for whoever demanded renegotiation, since their counterparty is likely to be annoyed that they object to honouring the earlier agreement. A lot has been said about the Brexit vote, and I don't want to rehash it all now here, but there is one aspect that's worth commenting on. That is the pretty stunning fact that nobody in the Leave campaign seems to have put any effort at all into gaming out what leaving the EU might involve. This was shown clearly when Michael Gove practically shrugged his shoulders when he was asked what the plan was, and said it wasn't up to him, it was up to Cameron. Not for long, as it turned out. It's worth giving a thought to what Gove, Johnson and Farage didn't think about. Invoking Article 50 basically means getting on an escalator that delivers you out of the EU within two years. The two years are for negotiations about disengaging from the EU. I suppose that involves EU property on UK soil, 
When do UK MEPs and officials leave their posts? How do you ease UK nationals employed by the EU institutions out of their jobs? And so forth. Another foolish comment made by Gove was that Britain would begin informal talks about leaving the EU immediately. Other EU governments immediately made it clear that they would not do this, no negotiations, until Article 50 is triggered. Cecilia Malmström, the EU Trade Commissioner, gave an interview to the BBC saying that negotiations about a trade deal to come into force after the UK leaves the EU would only start after the UK had left the EU. Everyone knows that these negotiations could take years, maybe decades, and in the meantime, the UK would have less favourable trading conditions with the EU than would, for example, South Africa. There might be a fudge on this. It's difficult to do under WTO rules, but there might be some negotiations about what will happen on the day after the UK leaves the EU. But the UK will be heavily relying on the goodwill of people that they've been shouting abuse at for years. But the bind for the next UK Prime Minister is very serious. If they don't trigger Article 50, they will face a democratic crisis, not to mention being a laughingstock. If and when they do trigger Article 50, they'll be jumping off a cliff and hoping to negotiate the price of installing a trampoline at the bottom while they're on their way down. That is not a strong negotiating position. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. On the line now, I have Kean Griffin of Ireland Underground. He was one of the organisers of a rally in Merrion Square recently highlighting rising car insurance costs. Kean, what were you seeking to achieve from that? Well, really what we were seeking to achieve was to just bring um, national attention to the issue of rising insurance costs. It's, it's always been an issue for the younger drivers, but recently it's expanded and hitting almost every demographic across the country now. So it's really become an issue that I believe anyway is in the national interest to get resolved before it gets worse. Okay. Um, and the, the motor industry, uh, the motor insurance industry is worth about 1.2 billion euros per year, which is about one half of 1% of Ireland's GDP. Why are you focusing on motor insurance in particular? Well, it's just because it's become uh, it's become a considerable strain on on, fa- on families with, with cars and on students who are driving to college and those trying to get to work. It, it's an extra cost on top of what we already pay in terms of tax, in terms of maintenance on, on our cars, and in terms of the NCT as well. And adding, of course, the cost of fuel on top of that. Owning a car in Ireland, I don't think has ever been more expensive than than it is at the moment. And really, we don't we. It's hard enough to afford the insurance as it is, but with the costs increasing 64% over the last two years, it's just becoming even harder now to to own a car. And obviously we don't have public transport to rely on, especially in rural areas. Um, Like myself, I know I'm I'm down in Kerry, so if I was to rely on the bus, I wouldn't be able to get to work on time for for the start of my shift. I, I would have another half hour to walk from the bus station out to my office. So it's really not feasible for me to rely on anything other than a car. Yeah, and this is true. There's many people, uh, people living in many places in Ireland where living without a car just isn't an option. Um, what I'm really wondering is, though, 
you obviously had a rally. What I want to understand is who are you, whose attention are you trying to get and what do you want them to do? Primarily, we were trying to get media attention and through that then maybe put some pressure on the government to resolve what issues they can. The thing about the current... Well, well, specifically, what, well specifically, what could the government, what could the government do? What they could look at is getting um, opening up the information that we need, for example, with regards to settlements. And the vast majority of settlements are, are awarded outside of the courts, so the, they don't go through the court system. So there's no record of the size or the amount of, of these payouts. So somebody's so injured, they, they sue the insurance company. The insurance company says they kind of put their hands up and offer an amount of money, but that doesn't go into the public record. That's what you mean, essentially. Exactly that. Exactly, and, that. and then that cost is essentially put onto the next year's insurance for pretty much everybody. Exactly, you have it. So I feel that in order to be able to police that correctly, we should have access to to that kind of data. Well, the the government should and the injuries board should, so that they can monitor it and, where possible, maybe seek to restrict those payouts not going through the courts. Um, like that, that's one thing that the insurance companies themselves quote as being one of the major issues is the increase in the cost of payouts. So obviously that's what we were hoping the government would take a look at primarily is to start maybe bringing down those costs and we would also like to see them tackle insurance fraud more stringently. Um, all of this we think anyway um, and a lot of the TDs we've spoken to are, are in agreement with us could be resolved by the reintroduction of the Motor Insurance Advisory Board. They were set up back in 2002 and they brought claims back down over 40%. So it was successful then. So I don't see why it wouldn't be successful again. Okay. Um, we know, of course, Alan Shatter attempted a significant reform in, in, in our legal system. His, uh, legal reform bill was essentially gutted despite the fact that the Troika said that Ireland, that our legal costs were making Ireland uncompetitive. Uh, do you think that legal fees are a big part of the problem? Um, obviously that feeds into it. I mean, the, the, um, Injuries Board was supposed to be a solicitor-free zone, but what you have in many cases is people who are in even minor accidents, they will go to their solicitor who who will fight for them to get a higher payout, which then, of course, again, feeds into the whole claim culture we, we're seeing at the moment. So it, it is a part of it as well. There's there's an awful lot of roll back, Roll back a little bit there. When you say the whole claim culture, what do you mean exactly? Well, we seem to have uh, be developing a situation in Ireland where people will have a minor accident and they seem they see an opportunity maybe to to get a payout. And there have been a lot of cases in the media over the last couple of months and years where you see uh, quite high payouts being given for for minor things. And even if you compare just the stats that we do have, oh, but oh, hang uh, on a second, Keen. Hang on a second, Keen. Yep. There's sort of a trope that you see in in uh, tabloid newspapers. Um, that says somebody got X amount of uh, money for an apparently minor injury. But when you read into the details of those, though they can be much more serious than they appear from the headline. Are you really saying that, I mean, of course, fraud is one thing, but are you really saying that people who are injured don't deserve the compensation that they're getting? Oh no, absolutely not. In many cases, there is they do deserve a lot of the, the the money that they are getting, but there are quite a few cases where they don't, where they are being given higher payouts than what what you would expect uh, compared to the European average. Um, like obviously, each individual case is different and would have to be treated as such. 
but we do seem to have an overly generous judicial system when it comes to, to the payouts compared to the European average. Is, is that your impression or do you have actual research to back that up? Um, that's that's the research given that the insurance companies are giving out. They are saying that the fraud and the size of the payouts compared to the European average is what's feeding into it from the data that they have. But then again, that feeds back to the the claims that are being paid out on the steps of the courts again. So that goes back to my original point that we would need access to that data to back all this up. To, to, to check out if the insurance companies are telling the truth. Exactly, or if there's something else going on, because um, a lot of people I've been speaking to, uh, journalists um, in, in various newspapers, believe that there's something more to it. But like that, when we don't have access to the data that, that the insurance companies have, then we can't obviously investigate fully. There have been various campaigns over the recent years to improve road safety. Um, they've come up against quite a lot of opposition. For example, there was very, very active opposition to enforcing speed limits, which going back a few years in Ireland was hardly done at all. Um, in your own county in Kerry, Danny Healy Ray, when he was a councillor, proposed and had passed a motion at Kerry County Council asking for drink driving to be made legal. That obviously has no legal effect, but it seems uh, it shows an attitude. We all know the scandals around penalty points. Wouldn't the best thing for motorists be to say, we want the road safety laws enforced more stringently and more consistently to make sure that the accidents don't happen in the first place? Yeah, that would be part of it. I mean, that, that drink driving thing that was proposed by Danny Healy, I don't agree with at all in any shape or form. It's, it was quite ridiculous and I was embarrassed to see it being put through my own county council. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, road safety has improved. Sure, sure but it, it betrays an attitude that that people, uh, and even if you listen to, to commentators like Pat Kenny or, or George Hook, they talk about uh, speed, uh, you know, um, speed cameras, almost as if they're unfair because they don't give a sporting chance to get to allow drivers get away with breaking the law. Th there is an attitude that is callous towards road safety in this country, isn't there? Um, there is in a lot of cases, yeah. I mean, I can I can understand a lot of people are annoyed at speed cameras, and I hear myself a lot of complaints about people who have been caught speeding. It's a case of have they nothing better to be doing? But look, I'm I fully agree with you there. I fully agree that we should be enforcing uh, those kind of things. I'd be in, absolutely in favour of uh, static speed cameras as opposed to the vans we have at the moment. Anything at all that can be done to improve road safety. I mean, we have seen a vast improvement in the last couple of years. Um, there's still a way to go, of course, but obviously that's uh, that's something I would like to see. But okay, w one thing one thing that's that's notable, uh, and you mentioned uh, younger drivers and younger, particularly male drivers, will be paying sometimes astronomical uh, insurance premiums. That tends to suggest that the insurance companies believe that they're a bad risk and just don't want the business. Uh, doesn't that suggest that the insurance companies are actually uh, working in a competitive market and they're just saying, in order to compete, we want those particular high-risk drivers off our books? Um, see, that would be the case if I give you, for example, now my own insurance, my staff, I was paying 1600 in the first year. And mm -hmm. I, I was okay with that because I knew statistically I was in the, the higher risk category. But I expected that, you know, as I get older and as I... Um, you have more experience in driving. Experience, 
exactly that my premium would come down. And it had been the case up until last year when my premium went up again, despite me having no claims, no convictions, nothing at all mm-hmm. that you would suggest would make me a riskier driver. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that across the board now that the insurance is going up for everyone, not just the young male drivers, not just the high risk categories, but for everyone. And like what everyone is saying to me is uh, there's nothing I've done this year that makes me any more of a risky driver than I was last year. Well, so, well there, there, there is one thing, Kian, that, for example, um, insurance companies, they take in your premium at the beginning of the year. But if there is a claim then on that, it's not going to be at the beginning of the year. It'll on average be halfway through the year. And that claim then may not be settled for several years afterwards. And the insurance companies invest the money in the meantime. No insurance companies make an underwriting profit. They don't make a profit straight up on the on the uh, premiums versus claims, but they know that they can invest the money and make back their losses and make a profit on that when markets, which are obviously completely outside your control, have very poor returns. So you, if you put your money, if you deposit it anywhere, you're not getting a, you're not getting much of a return. Um, that means that the the low returns in the uh, investment market are hitting uh, premiums. That's unfortunate, but it's not really anything we can do about, is it? Exactly, and you're you're on the ball there. Exactly that we there's very little we can do to control the markets, which is why we were targeting what what we can control through the government with regards to the the higher payouts and things like that. And I mean, this this is the problem you have when you are legally required to get insurance, but you're depending on the private companies to provide it. Obviously, they want to make a profit. They're not they're not in the business to to make a loss. They are there for profit. So there's a lot of kind of contradicting things going on here where uh, like the, obviously it's legally binding to have insurance, yet we depend on the private industry to supply that. Whereas in other countries then say Australia, for example, it's uh, a different format where it's taken off the cost of of fuel and other countries would perhaps have a state-sponsored insurance company. So like I said, there's a lot feeding into it. Aviva seems to be the only company that do pursue fraudulent claims more actively and they're turning a higher profit than the other companies because of that. And uh, one of my local TDs here, Michael Healy Ray, he had been in discussions with various insurance companies he didn't give names of now, but he said that what they do is they do pay out claims that they know are fraudulent because it's just easier than going through the court system. So that was another one of the things that uh, I... Sure, that's actually an important, that's actually an important point, that if they've got a claim that they know is dodgy, perhaps because it's fraudulent or perhaps because it's not, uh, uh, it's not valid, even if the person is not, not trying to commit fraud, um, they may see it as in their interests to pay out because they say, okay, if we go to court, there's a 20% chance that we'll lose. That's an 80% chance that we'll win, but still one in five times you'll lose and we might lose huge. So we'll offer them 10% of what they're asking and they'll go away. That settles that individual case. But of course, it means that there's a queue of people the next morning saying, I'll have that uh, that that 10% as well, and it encourages more uh, either false or incorrect claims. That's what you're getting at, essentially, is it? Exactly that. Exactly that. You're on the ball there. So that that's why uh, in, in my letter to Mr. Noonan, that was one of the things I highlighted specifically that we want that tackled because um, not only does it affect you know your premiums across the board, but it could have a very, very negative effect on individuals. Say, for example, if, if it was only a small... 
tip, for example, and someone decided oh, I can take advantage of this and get a fifty thousand euro payout or whatever, and that one individual, their premium will skyrocket, obviously, because mm -hmm. of that. So, um, obviously, it's affecting across the board, and as I said, those individuals as well. So that's one of the one of the more important issues that we wanted to see highlighted. That one, one last thing. That. One last thing, then, uh, Kian, is that. Um, Claire Daly in the doll spoke about this and um, she said that there was a scheme previously but was discontinued when a, 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 uh, one insurance company was taken over. Um, but it, there's all sorts of technologies now. There's, for example, speed limiters, um, there's dash cams. Anybody who's got connection to YouTube will know the amount of comedy that provides. Uh, and also a device, a GPS recording device that you can put in a car that will just um, know the speed limit on any given road know the speed that the car is traveling at and if the person agrees to supply that data to their insurance company then gets a much lower insurance premium shouldn't a lot of this be uh, solved by technology it, it should indeed and especially when you have um, the advanced technology on the cars themselves whereby you know the automatic braking they can see things happening in front of them and react to that you'd imagine that should bring down the the premiums in the coming years um, but obviously a lot of us, particularly younger drivers, are, we're stuck with the older cars because, you know, that's all we can afford and then there's mm -hmm. a, a higher loading on, on those cars again. So with the advances in technology and as we get access to it, you would imagine that it is going to bring down the insurance premiums over the next couple of years. Would you, would you personally expect, that. would you personally accept having a, having a, essentially a GPS tracker in your car that, uh, if not Big Brother or the NSA, then at least the insurance company can see whether you speed regularly or at all? If I was able to get guaranteed assurances that the data of where I am and what I'm doing is going for, for no other reason than just to monitor my driving, then I think I would be happy with that. But, you know, a lot of people I know, they value their privacy massively and they wouldn't like someone knowing where they are all the time. Um, you know, so there's that argument as well. That That's kind of a complicated issue, I think. And that's one that's really down to each individual, whether they're happy to provide that information. Kean Griffin of Ireland Underground, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Never miss a show. Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's almost the end of episode 42 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 6th of July, 2016. I have links to nominate Here's How in the Blog Awards Ireland on the show notes for this podcast. There's also information I was citing in the discussion with Kean Griffin, along with links to his website and Facebook page. If you can think of a topic that you think should be covered in a future show, or if you want to suggest someone to include, and that could be yourself, then let me know. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and give it a rating or even write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook. Please follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast so new shows automatically come into your podcast feed. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio or any other podcast app or software. If you don't know how to do that, there's step-by-step -step instructions along with contact details at www.hereshow.ie. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Don't forget to nominate, and thank you for listening. Music